0: Hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. This is the word of God.
1: Good morning, everybody. It is so good to be with you this morning and to worship together. Hope you're doing well in this lovely morning. Am I on? Can you guys hear me? Good. Maybe I'm a little low. Better? You guys good? Wonderful. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. This past weekend, uh, we had an amazing marriage conference. And for those of you who were there, it was a wonderful time. We had over 100 people there. And it was just an exciting time to gather with made people in our church to hear from God, hear from wonderful teachers who, who, who shared with us from their lives and talk in small groups and tables around and really just to hear from each other. And I really believe God blessed this time together. It was a great event and it's a time of reflection and growth for me and Gina. And I just wanna thank um, Eric and Ben for doing a great job putting that together. I, I wanna to thank the, the Buckleys and the Loves and the Changs for sharing from their own life and all the tables and everybody who shared, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time. So thank you guys for coming and being a part of it, taking seriously um, the call to live godly married lives together. Also taking very seriously that our desire is for our marriages in this church to be a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. So thank you guys so much for doing that. Now, I want you to know, for all you single people out there, I want you to know you're loved and prayed for as well. You're not excluded here. There is no hierarchy and no more worth given to someone because of their marital status. All you single people, you are valued. You are loved. Just because we didn't have a, or a single person conference for you, doesn't mean you're not loved. Doesn't mean that you're not valued. Doesn't mean you're not needed. I'll be honest with you. It feels difficult, the idea of putting on a single person's conference or event feels difficult because I feel like it'll end up feeling like speed dating or just a chance to meet somebody. I mean, I feel like if I advertise a single's conference, if I'd like be afraid a little bit of who'd show up, but also be afraid, it'd be like, I feel like an episode of The Bachelor or something like that. Like, I don't want that, I don't want that. So, those are not happening for those reasons, but for all you single people, you are seen, you are loved, and you are appreciated here at Waypoint Church. I'm not saying, um, I'm not saying that you're not seen as somebody who just needs to get married at all, or needs to be married soon, or you're not of value until you are married. You're valued just the way you are. and God's using you where you're at. All that to say, I'm thankful that we have a church full of married people and single people, because God uses whatever time, whatever season, and wherever you're at in life for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Cool, just to make sure you guys are aware of that. We don't like just the married people here. Now, on to the message. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, and when we get to this first parable, that I, we're now at the first parable that we're going to talk about in the Gospel of Luke. So the first question that I want to answer this morning is, what is a parable? Right? You guys have heard a million sermons on parables, I'm sure. So I just want to give you guys a refresher. So what's the parable? I have a quote here from Bloomberg. says this. A concise definition of a parable is that it's a short metaphorical narrative. With or without an explicit comparison, it highlights aspects of the kingdom of God. It presents a series of events involving a small number of characters, people, animals, plants, even inanimate objects, most of which seem realistic in Jesus' world. At least one element in most parables, however, pushes the boundaries of plausibility. Along with their context in the Gospels, this quality reveals that they are fictional works designed to disclose spiritual truths. Parables are helpful because they take a hard, often difficult to understand concept like the kingdom of God and lays it down alongside something that is relatable. Doesn't mean it makes it easy to understand. It just makes it more relatable. In Jesus' day, he used images like farming and fishing. Sometimes the parable is simply a simile. The kingdom of God is like... Other times there are long, drawn-out metaphors. But like any metaphor, though, when taken too far, a parable breaks down. This is kind of like the challenge of teaching parables. It's kind of like the price is right. Parables invite you to take them as far as the metaphor, metaphor will let you go without going over. You guys with me? You can't bid one over, right? You gotta be, you gotta be. The parable that we're looking at today, this morning, appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in this parable, it's a very famous parable. You guys, you've probably heard the parable of the sower before. In this parable, we have a farmer, and he's scattering seed everywhere. Some fell along a trampled path where the birds came and ate it up. Some seed fell on rocky ground and withered because there was no moisture. Some fell among thorns and were ch- choked out. But some fell on good soil and yielded an abundant Crop. And then Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And the disciples heard this parable and they're confused. What exactly are you saying, Jesus? What's the seed? Who's the farmer? Why are we planting? What are we planting? I'm confused. And that's what they're thinking. And then Jesus says something so much more confusing. So here are the disciples, they're confused already. They don't know what the parable is about. They don't know what's going on. They don't know who's who and what in the parable. And it's like, Jesus, what's going on? They wanna know. And Jesus goes to one of those like, Greek philosophy, philosopher type answers and doesn't really answer the question. And he says something even more difficult to understand. He says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables. So that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. Huh? Right? Like what in the world does that mean? Jesus speaks in the parables so that some will hear his teaching and see, but not see and not truly see and hear? I am so confused. Anybody else confused? A little bit? Okay, I don't want to be the only one that doesn't get it. He's talking about this attention here that you immediately see. And it's a little confusing. There's a t- tension here that's like, like, that's, that's like is, saying, is he saying his preaching is designed for failure to produce results? Is he intentionally being obscure to turn people away? What is happening here? I don't quite get it. But one way to get it is you do what, what everybody else would have known, he's quoting somebody here. right? If you tell in your Bibles, if you looked at it, it, says, it shows that he's quoting somebody. He's quoting Isaiah, one of the best known, well-known prophets of that age. People would know Isaiah. As a matter of fact, he's not just quoting Isaiah, he's quoting a famous chapter in Isaiah, a chapter where Isaiah is called, where he encounters God. This is actually a chapter that most of you guys are probably familiar with, where where Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, right? This call before God. And this is what Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 says. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord and is charged to preach to the nation. His life is spent proclaiming impending judgment for many and for restoration for a remnant. God tells him at the outset, however, his life preaching will sometimes produce the opposite of what Isaiah may desire it's gonna make some more dull and more unresponsive. When Isaiah's ministry stirred up faith in some, it further pointed out to others who are straying further away from God. It's almost shocking, as if it's like God is saying, Isaiah, your ministry is gonna be a lightning rod. It's gonna come down, and it's gonna create stark division, right? He's literally saying to Isaiah that the people who are kinda following or seem like they're following, are going to really far drift away, but the ones who get it will really get it. You with me so far? When Jesus takes Isaiah's commission on his own lips, he's revealing the type ministry that he himself is going to produce. In the Old Testament, it reveals that prophets spoke in parables as part of their mission. For instance, Psalm 78 describes the prophet as opening his mouth in parable, declaring the glorious deeds of the Lord. Ezekiel complains, Lord God, they're saying of me, is he not a maker of parables, in Ezekiel 21. Prophets use parables as all sorts to veil and to unveil truth, to bring here is the point of recognizing their own judgment and to produce a response. Prophets were called to be the word of God to say, hey, You have to respond. They proclaim a word to the people that says, hey, there's no kind of wishy-washiness in this point. There's no wishy-washiness in this endeavor. They're basically coming forth and saying, you have to make a decision. Do you repent or do you not? He's calling them to the point of decision-making, a point of polarization. So what exactly is Jesus doing in the parables? Identifying himself... As a prophet is one thing. He uses parables to say, I'm a prophet, like the prophets of old, teaching through parables. Even culminating the the mission of Isaiah. Like the prophets of old, Jesus uses parables to reveal the mystery of the kingdom, to produce reflection on sin, and to call people to repentance. And honestly, to produce the opposite of those who are against And what that means, what Jesus is saying is literally, he's saying, for those who hear, for those who get it, they are going to delight in the glorious truth of Jesus' parables. They will receive the secrets of the kingdom. But for those who are against God, parables are designed to remain mundane stories of farming, kind of little trite sayings of vineyards and real estate economics or traveling and banquets, but nothing more. For such parables are veiled even quaint. But do you know what's not? The gospel you see on close inspection Jesus is not being obscure for obscurity's sake what Jesus is doing like the gospel is exposing soft or hardened hearts it has a polarizing effect guys what I'm trying to tell you what Jesus is trying to say is that parable's intention is to say I'm going to make you come to a point of decision making either you get it and you delight in the glory of the gospel or you don't but there's no both ways about it do you see what I'm saying? Jesus is saying the purpose of the parables is to say, I'm like the prophet of old. I'm calling, saying, this is the voice of God saying, repent. But if you don't get it, then they're just stories. But if you get it, it's a secret to the kingdom of God. You with me so far? That's the beauty of these parables. It connects you to the Old Testament, to the prophets of old. Jesus is fulfilling that mission and then saying, hey, this is life and death and it's beauty, or it's not, you choose. Now to the parable explained. Verse 11, it says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. I love that, it starts off, the seed, he's literally saying, this is what this is, this is the word of God. And so the farmer is whoever is giving forth this seed. I would say at this point then, the farmer would most likely be Jesus or God himself giving his word. So he's giving the word of God, it's being cast out. And the first ground that it's come upon is this path. And a path, I love that I talked about, is it. a trampled on path. So, what that literally means is that it's been walked upon, right? This is me walking upon a path. I like, you know, you're welcome. And when it's walked upon, the ground becomes hard, right? Hard ground, and so what it is, is difficult for the seeds to get into the ground, and it's prime for the seeds to just sit on top, right? Hard-packed ground. So when the seeds are just on top, what then could happen? Birds sweeping. They come, and they get the, the seeds, and they eat it. And what Hello? There we go. I think it's just kind of going down on me here. There we go. Satan is the bird and he's plucking the word from ever taking root in the ground. Literally, it's saying the lies that Satan's called the great deceiver for a reason. It's the lies that he spouts, takes the word that was placed upon hearts of the people and plucks them away. The lies of, hey, this can't be true. The lies of other belief systems and philosophies. One of my favorite quotes from a movie of all time. It's a quote from a movie called Usual Suspects. And I've quoted this before, but I can't help it. And it says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world he doesn't exist. I know, that's a good quote. I gotta say it like Kaiser Sose says it, but I'm just, not gonna do that. Oh yeah. That's an old movie, no, no, no spoiler alert needed. <laughs> if you need spoiler alerts for that movie, I'm sorry. Whatever lie possible, Satan will use it to convince a person that the Word of God isn't real and it isn't good. He'll use whatever lie possible. He'll use it. He'll say, "There is no God." He'll say, "There is no Satan." He'll sp- spout words to you that says, "Hey, the most important thing in this universe is you." He'll say, "You're all that matters, as long as you find happiness and contentment in yourself. Whatever it is, the lies of the world and the lies of Satan will combat the truths of God. And for those who the soil, if the seeds don't dig into this, the hard packed ground is not going to let the word of God dive deep into their hearts and it's going to be plucked out by the lies. The second ground is the rock withered without moisture, not, there's no ability to build roots. It's, it's hard ground that like, keeps in the sun, the heat is there and it just withers away, the seed. Whatever sprout comes up is withered away. The ground refers to those who might be maybe interested, maybe even excited in the word, but maybe even hopeful, but no root ever establishes. So when difficulties come, when heat comes, when hardships of the world happens, there's no root. They fall victims to the difficulties of this world. You guys know what I'm talking about? Those, has anybody in here, just out of curiosity, lived the easy, perfect, like no difficulty life? Nobody? Oh, man! No. Can I tell you something? That one thing that Jesus promised, he, thinks, he promised a lot of things, but one thing he did promise also is he said these words. He says, in this life, in your life, in this life, every one of you, you will have trouble. Can everybody say, oh, we know that one's true. You will have trouble in this life. In this world, you will have struggles. Guys, can I tell you something? I hate this. But we know way too intimately that that's true. You know that in this life that sorrow happens and it breaks my heart when I read about what I hear about, what I experience, when I walk through my friends, going through the darkest of times, and all my heart wants to do is break and I say, "God, why does this have to happen in this world?" We will have trouble. Death will happen. Always does. Your heart will break. You will lose you will hurt that's going to happen and I pity I pity you that you if you have no roots nothing to sustain you nothing to hold on to when the heat gets so bad there's no moisture, there's no liquid there's no life for you that's what this other soil is It's a place where you have nothing to hold on to, and the rough parts of this world just dries you out, makes you parched and withered. The third soil is ground with thorns. You're choked out by all the thorns around them. This is the idea of one who receives the word, but the things of this world choke them out. The thorns of this world take away all the nutrients from this plant, the focus on whether it's riches and pleasures that's offered up in this world, or I love, I love how it adds worries. Right? I love in the same sentence where it talks about pleasures and riches, it also adds worries, which seems so different from those other two. But they're all thorns. They're all things that take precedent, priority, importance, all things that choke out our nutrient seeking, our fellowship and our relationship and our abiding in Jesus. That's what it is, guys. Where do you get nutrients? I love how in the Bible it talks about Jesus as our vine. And where the branches get nutrients, it comes from the vine. A branch without the nutrients that the vine provides can bear no grapes. You guys with me so far? This is, this is a grape illustration. You guys are like, i don't I'm confused, I don't know how grapes grow, it's okay. This is, this is how it works. At least I think, I don't even know that much. I am like the worst farmer in the world, by the way. This illustration isn't the best for me, but I'm working with it. See, the reality is nutrients, is it sap? I don't even know, the nutrients goes through the vine, it goes out the branch, and from the branch comes fruit. Right? The problem is, is that most of us decide to say, I want to live in, I want to abide in everything else, in the worries of life. I want to focus on that. I want to live in for pleasures and for comfort and for security. Guys, can I tell you, yes, for those of us who live in America, one of the wealthiest nations in the wealthiest times in the history of the world, we struggle with this one the most. Because we think we deserve or we demand and we have a need for comfort and ease. We live in a society that values security and wealth. And we rely on that instead of relying on the vine. And so we get choked out. Sometimes it's our fears and our anxieties and our worries that choke us out. And they're real but they're, and they're powerful. And when we let the thorns grow bigger and stronger, it chokes out more and more of the seeds of God's word. But then there's a fourth ground, the good soil. Grew and yielded a hundredfold. Those who receive and respond to the word, they persevere. They produce a good crop. Now that you see, that this, this, this is their interpretation of the four types of ground. And the most common question that I hear is then what type of soil are you? And I have read many sermons and commentaries on this passage, and that is the most common follow-up idea. What type of ground are you? What type of ground should you be? Of course we should be like the fourth ground and produce good crop. Most preachers end up basically saying, be the good soil, and that's the message. Be the good soil, but I can't help myself, guys. I tend to just think differently. My mind doesn't work this way. You see, I don't see Jesus explicitly saying, be the good soil." in this passage. He never says, be the good soil, because that's not what the parable of the sower is all about, I don't think. I can't make this story have that neat and tidy moral that I can't make myself into good soil. I don't think I can. This isn't to say that if you think you're a path or a rocky soil or full of weeds that there's no hope for you. In fact, I think this is saying precisely the opposite. First of all, I don't think any of us are just one type of soil. Am I right? I think each of us have all, oftentimes, different times, all kinds of soil in our hearts. And despite all this talk about soils, I don't think the parable of the sower is really about the soil. I think the parable of the sower is really about the sower. I think it's about the sower. The story is a description of a prodigal sower of a prodigal God. Listen, I want you to know this. It is foolish as a farmer to cast seeds on rock. That's just dumb. (laughs) Right? It is just dumb as a farmer to cast seed on where people walk. It's just dumb. It is dumb as a farmer to cast seed where there's a bunch of thorns. What do most smart farmers do? They clear the, the, they till the soil. They make it into good soil. Right? But what is art this story does is something different. It's describing a prodigal of God. God knows it's foolish to spread seed on unworthy soil, but he does it anyway. God spreads his love and his word with reckless abandon in hearts that are oftentimes once all four soils. He throws seeds at disciples who over and over again prove that they have hard hearts, stiff necks, and dim minds. Jesus continues to throw seed at them and continues to work with them and continues to help them see what God is up to in the world around them. He scatters the seeds of the gospel everywhere. Even the places like Durham, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Even the places like by myself as a 16-year-old high school kid who thought he knew everything. He scatters the seed with reckless abandonment and even when his disciples don't get it, when they turn him over to the authorities, abandon him in his hour of need, did not even know him, Jesus continues to cast out seed and to pour his love out. God, I tell you, this story is not about what kind of soul can you be. This story is about what kind of God our Father is. He's a type of farmer that says, I'm going to throw out seed. I love them so much. And yes, sometimes they're the hard soil. Sometimes thorns are there. Sometimes there's rocky ground. But I'm going to make them into good soil. I'm going to do the work. And they're going to receive it. They're going to repent. And they're going to know me. God is downright foolish in his love for you and me. We continue to be proud, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people, very much like the disciples. We often seek morals and stories that are not quite there. We ignore other morals and stories that call us to action. We neglect to build the kingdom often. We focus on ourselves. We show again and again why we need forgiveness while often not forgiving others. The good news is God continues to throw seed at us. Can I tell you this, my people? I can't tell you how many times, just as honest, I shouldn't admit this, but I'm going to admit this anyway. I can't tell you how many times I fell asleep during church sermons before. Just being honest, confession time, I have fallen asleep during many a sermon. I've been every type of soil. But I thank God that he never stopped casting seeds at me. I thank God that his love might seem foolish to others, but it's overwhelming and it's powerful. And when he finds the smallest patch of that good soil in your heart, when he works it out in you, when the Holy Spirit does a convicting, converting, softening work in your heart and it becomes good soil and he nurtures the kingdom in us and he nurtures the kingdom through us and we start returning a harvest that's 30, 60, even 100 fold, we produce a good crop and he preserves us and perseveres us. This parable is about a God as widely extravagant love for us. Do you see that this morning? Will you receive that this morning? This story isn't about you becoming good soil. There's nothing in your own ability to make yourself good soil. It's about seeing an incredible, loving God that turns you into good soil. His love is absolutely extravagant. And in that extravagant love, what happens is all of a sudden, that rocky path where Satan's lies come in, or that the walked on path where Satan's lies come in, then he say, no, no, his love is greater than the lies of Satan. So his love starts turning that hard walked path into a place where the seed comes in, and Satan can't get to it. And then he takes that rocky ground that rocky bed where there is no moisture, and he shatters those rocks and allows moisture to come in, so that when the hard times come, and you guys know they all come, what you're left with is God's love is so good. Even when I lose, even when I hurt, even when it's hard, even when I don't understand, I can choose to believe and trust that God loves me. And one day, one day, maybe while in the land of the living, I'll experience his goodness again. But I know one day for sure, all will be made right. All that is wrong, every tear that is shed will be wiped away. All that is imperfect in this world and all that shouldn't be, one day will be made right. Till that day, I can just rest in love. And then he takes the ground that's covered in thorns. When everything else competing for your love. And he says, when you know the love, the extravagant love of the the sower, the thorns, you want to just say, they're not worth it. The pleasures of the world and of the flesh, the comforts that this world has to offer, it's not worth the comfort of being loved passionately and extravagantly. It's not worth what's going to happen one day. So that becomes, he takes all these bad soils, all this bad ground, and makes it good soil. So the invitation this morning is for you to know the sower, the one who recklessly plants seeds, the one who loves you, the one who sees you and knows you, and the one who's called you to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for God, your heart that's extravagant and reckless for us. God, we thank you that this parable is about an incredible sower who loves us passionately, and who's gonna do a work of transforming us into good soil. We thank you for your word may produce hundredfold. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
2: Amen. At this time in our worship service, we're going to join with our Christian sisters and brothers throughout the world in participation in the Lord's Supper, also called Communion. This is a time when followers of Jesus come together to reflect and remember the death and suffering of Jesus Christ and the new covenant we have in him. This morning during the prayer time, uh, Pastor Eric led us through a time of confession, the first Sunday of the month. We try to incorporate confession into our service before we take the Lord's Supper. We ask God to search our hearts. We confess our sins to God. And uh, I want to invite you this morning to accept his forgiveness and know that you're forgiven. And part of why we do this Holy Communion, is there's, there's multiple layers of way it's presented in the, in the Scriptures, but one of the main reasons we do it is to reorient ourselves back to Christ on a regular basis. And all of us, our hearts will just turn hard. Maybe it's because of the hardships of the world, it's because of things going on. I mean, there's just a lot. And we get to come to the table and take bread and, and remember that God sent his son and his son came and died and his body was broken so that we could be free and Jesus says that the cup is the new covenant in his blood and in this cup there's freedom and there's life and whenever you drink it and you eat it we do this in remembrance that of the hope we have in him. All of us are forgiven. All of us who accept Jesus can have new life. And it's going to be hard. I'm I'm not going to promise you that it's a magic, you know, because we accepted Christ that everything's going to be okay. But I can promise you that we can keep coming back to this table. And every time you come, you can remember his goodness. You can remember his freedom. You can remember his forgiveness. And this is just one of the ways we get to do that. But we get to do that as his people. So at this time, I'm going to invite the servers up. And this is an opportunity for all of us who follow Christ to, like I said, remember and and live in this forgiveness. How we do it here at Waypoint is, if this is your first time or you haven't done communion with us, we do it through something called intinction. And intinction is where you come up and you'll be handed a cracker. And then you can take the cracker and dip it in the juice. And uh, we'll say a, a blessing as, as you take it. And if you want, you, I dip it lightly in the juice so it doesn't spread everywhere. You know, it's, it's okay. We don't care about the carpet. We're more concerned about you, you know, and, and, and this meal that you're taking. But if you want to take it immediately, that's okay. If you want to take it back to your seat, you can also do that uh, and take some time to reflect and remember the Lord's suffering and, and his death and his resurrection until he comes back. Um, this section here will come to here. this. You guys can come here. You guys can go to them. Uh, it, these are gluten-free. There are also some stations in the back. If for health reasons or others, you need to take an individual cup. They're in the back room, in the back corner back there. And if you have to stay seated and you need us to come and bring it to you, we can do that after uh, we've served everyone up here. Mm-hmm. So let's come and and take and partake in the Lord's goodness until he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that on a regular basis we can come to your table and be reminded that there's a new covenant in your blood. A covenant that was promised long ago through Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. A covenant of grace and mercy and forgiveness. A covenant of pursuit, your pursuit of us and your love of us. A covenant that allows us to be part of a new kingdom where we know that you love us and you call us and you're working in a broken world and bringing us to you and and restoring us and renewing us each day. I thank you for this table. I pray that each person here would live in in, in freedom this week. And no matter if things are really hard and they're just walking through a lot or it's, it's, it's a good time and they're just celebrating that. We would continue to know that you love us, you call us, and you're with us. That we thank you and praise you for your table and your mercies and that are new renewed every morning. And we just give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray.